Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. everyone, and welcome to the Saltivation Podcast. Today, we're going to spend some time talking about and trying to understand why state and local tax often gets pushed to the back burner and why its importance is overlooked. If you spent any time in state and local tax, or perhaps you haven't, which might validate this conversation, um, you may have noticed this as well. We want to explore how this has happened and why managing the politics, not the red and blue politics, but the politics of state and local tax within a business makes a lot of sense. So joining us for this discussion today is Diane Yetter, founder of the Sales Tax Institute and Yetter Consulting and Saltivation's very own Judy Vordren. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yes, happy to have you. And so, Diane, I don't know if you just want to give us a little bit of your background and kind of give us a picture as to why we really want to talk to you, because you're great. But so tell us in your own words why you are good at what you do. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, and my my background, my career has been spent exclusively in the sales and use tax field. So I've been doing it scarily for almost 35 years. And I have spent time kind of in all aspects of sales and use tax. So I started my career as an auditor with the state of Kansas. And then I went into industry and spent about a a little over a year with the Quaker Oats Company. Went from there to Arthur Anderson when the accounting firms in the late 80s were starting to develop state and local tax practices. So I was the first person hired in the Chicago office of Arthur Anderson with prior sales and use tax experience. And I spent about seven and a half years with them. And towards the end of my time there, I had gotten involved with doing tax automation and made a pitch to Anderson to uh, let me lead a tax automation practice. And they didn't think that's where the industry was going. And I did. So in 1996, I branched out on my own and started my own consulting practice and have been doing that for almost 24 years. You know, why is it that you have decided after 35 years to stay in state and local tax? Well, I love sales and use tax in particular, um, which is really what my area of focus is in. I, I really don't do much in the income tax or property tax or any of the other types of state and local taxes. But what I find fascinating and exciting and intriguing about working with sales tax is to be successful uh, as a consultant, but more importantly, to be successful handling sales tax internally within your own business, you need to know the business. So unlike income tax, where you're looking at, you know, grand totals of things, to be, to be really good at sales tax, you have to understand the minutia. You have to understand your business operations. So if you're a manufacturer going out and actually understanding the manufacturing process, how is whatever you make made? What materials go into it? What gets consumed and dissipated? What is scrap? What goes into the customer packaging? Uh, how is the different pieces? Uh, how are the different pieces of equipment used? Uh, what kind of equipment is used? Um, that's on the operation side. 
uh, or the the production side. If you're not in manufacturing, if you are in retail, how uh, what are your different sales channels that you sell through? What types of items do you sell? Uh, how do you process a sales order? Um, getting into just the operational of, of invoicing, you need to understand how do you accept uh, sales orders from customers, what are your sales channels, how do you uh, process credits, uh, do you do uh, terms, so do you issue invoices with payment terms. You need to understand all of those financial operations. You need to understand marketing and communication and all of those other aspects in order to be really good at sales tax. And I love that. I love going out and being in my clients' businesses. When I was at Quaker Oats, it was one of the funnest things I got to do was I had to go to go on all these uh, plant tours and you know, going for Quaker Oats, that's pretty fun when you can go through and eat hot Captain Crunch right off the line. Right. <laughs> see how puffed rice is made. Or golly, at the time we owned Ghirardelli chocolate. Really? Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. That's an interesting segue to own chocolate and oats. Yes, I like well, it. They also had pet food and those were not so great to go through. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, we have a uh, Purina rendering plant not too far from, you know, our houses where Judy and I live. And so when the wind blows just right, you get a nice little, like, smell of what's cooking. And it's not, you know, Giardelli chocolate or, you know, fresh baked oats. Yeah. Well, and keep in mind, back in those days, Judy, you probably remember this. You know, what what did women wear professionally? Suits. Hose, skirt, right. pantyhose, yeah. high heels. Yeah. Yeah. So, so going through those plants, you know, there were a couple of spots where, you know, they said, ah, I don't think we're going to go in that area. And I said, why? And they said, because you have to walk above on a open uh, weave you know, metal catwalk and yeah. there's underneath you. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, we're going to pass know. on that one. <laughs> Yeah, you know, so I got smarter and I would bring different clothes if I knew I was going on a plant tour. But those are the types of things that I love about sales tax. And I love, I love solving problems. Right, because you don't really want the sales tax to drive the business process. So you have to really understand how it is so that you can work with the flow as much as possible, but also get people within the company to help you advocate for the proper right flow of information. So documentation follows truth. So your tax truth is transparent in an audit. No, I agree. I, it's funny you say that, Diane, because that's exactly how I feel. And I think we all feel that way as a team because we get so excited to get to know our businesses and really understand how they do things. And then we help them advocate on their own behalf on how to manage their expectations for their governmental obligations. Well, and Diane, do you find, and Judy too, do you find that the people who are ultimately making the decisions really know what to do or why the decision is being made? And do they really understand the nuances that have gone into making that decision or the process? Well, I think I think one of the challenges in the sales tax field is it is often a fairly low-level person that has responsibility for it. Um, it could be a clerical person. It could be an entry-level accountant. You know, when I was at Quaker Oats, I was I was a staff accountant. And I was the only person in the sales tax area. I had an intern that prepared my tax returns, but that was it. I reported to an income tax manager. I reported, you know, up through to the tax director. 
um, VP of tax, but they they had never spent time in the sales tax field. So I I was responsible for making decisions that could cost the company millions of dollars if they weren't done correctly. And, and so that can be very empowering to a younger um, person in their career, but it can also be very intimidating because what if you make the wrong recommendation? What if you do it wrong? And, you know, back, back in those days, there wasn't the types of resources and networking opportunities that there are today. You really felt kind of isolated. And sales tax was always kind of the redheaded stepchild that right. you, you got promoted out of it. You know, when I was, <laughs> when I was with the state of Kansas, you know, at two years, I was being trained to move to income tax. And I started the training and I really wasn't looking forward to it. I had done a lot of exciting things um, in my role as a sales tax auditor. Um, and and I really wasn't interested in that. And so I was actually kind of glad that the opportunity came for me to move, you know, to industry. And same thing when I got to Quaker, they wanted to train me to do income tax and get me out of doing sales tax. At Arthur Anderson, they wanted me to learn how to do income tax. You know, so throughout my entire career, people kept trying to pull me out of sales tax, and I kept digging my heels in and wanting to stay and and keep doing what I'm doing. And and I'm so grateful that I did. Well, and you went against the tide, though, and that's what's very interesting, Diane. Same with me, because when I started, it was like you can do this; it's very clerical. And I thought, but I kind of like it, actually. I'm a, I'm the same as you. I really enjoy the sales tax side of things, and I'm fascinated that it's really been something that's been relegated to somebody that doesn't understand the process and doesn't understand the, the all the issues that go into it, the legal ramifications of a document that they submit to a government, and the mon- monetary issues at a at a state and local level, the money going out of business that may or may not be correct. So um, it's interesting that you had that same experience. And that just is fascinating given that sales tax has been around almost 100 years come 1922. Um, 1922 is when the first sales tax was enacted in West Virginia. We're almost 100 years later. And we're still kind of of this value system of not being as important until Wayfair came around, actually, in my mind. Well, and it's interesting, too, that, you know, kind of income tax was the promotion, right? Because, you know, Judy and I have done a lot of due diligence and, you know, oftentimes targets are, you know, startups, they have a great idea, you know, maybe they were equity backed and they they now want an out or they can be integrated into, you know, a larger business that makes sense. But their their burn is huge and their expenses are huge. So they're at a loss for federal income tax purposes. They're at a loss for state tax purposes. But almost everything that gets escrowed is sales tax. And so, um, like, I want to kind of understand, you know, why is that? Like, because that's where the real money is that we see on diligence. And how do you think, um, you know, I'll put the question out to both um, Diane and Judy, like, how do you think people actually real, like, come to see the value and the importance of, you know, that sales tax piece? Well, I think what I've been seeing is you're you're exactly right that the 
the visibility is for income tax. And particularly for startups, there, there is no income tax exposure um, in the early years. There is no income tax planning for the most part in the early years. And the focus is on sales. It's sell, 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 grow, grow, grow. And, and what happens is that the, the companies don't really focus too much early on on uh, infrastructure other than to generate sales. And what I say to all of my early stage companies is here's the thing that you need to keep in mind. If what you sell is taxable, every mistake, every order that goes out that doesn't have tax on it correctly, you've just, you've just lost nine to 10% of your gross sales price. And I asked them, what is your margin? What is your profit on every sale? And typically it is well below nine to 10%. And so then I say, all right, so if you want to not lose that, and, and don't forget that it'll compound because if the state doesn't find you for a few years, now you're paying interest and penalty on top of that. And so if I can get into those early stage companies with the explanation of let's at least take a look at do, do the things that you sell, are they taxable generally? Um, and then let's get a process in place to track where you have an obligation to collect tax. And let's at least deal with your home state where you are. Certainly after the Wayfair decision in 2018, we have to think about economic nexus and how fast are you growing. But you also have to think about what channels are you selling in? Are you an Amazon FBA seller? There's other things that come into play. Um, and, and you need to kind of have that discussion early on with these early stage companies. But when you do that, Diane, don't you think that you still get pushed aside? I could tell you, we have many a client that's a startup and a year, two years later, we finally start working on remediation. And I, I'm actually involved in a client now that has been in business 37 years and never even did anything in their home state. So I, I don't understand that. Like the state never found them and nobody ever thought about it. And here we are on an escrow issue, right? It's being, they're being purchased. And now we're, and so much of that has been pushed aside all these years. Now, Judy, do you think that's because the, you know, the CEO, the owner didn't know any better? Or is he just like, yeah, I know something's out there, but I don't care. Come and find me. Like, what do you there think is that a baseline? That yes. I agree. No, I think there is, I feel like there's a little bit of that kind of, I'm the entrepreneur, I'm out here to create something and, you know, I don't have that care. Let them catch me is exactly correct. I still, I see that being more the viewpoint in the entrepreneurial community until they're, they get traction. But even once there's traction, it's like, then it's just sort of overwhelming, honestly, to kind of tackle it. I think that is a problem in and of itself. What do you think, Diane? Yeah, I, I think I see a mix. I see, you know, I've worked with a couple of companies pre-launch that they they didn't want, you know, they're they're more conservative. And and I helped one company that was a software business, you know, get their contracts correct, get their marketing correct, get their web language correct, get their order process correct in order to minimize tax. 
And I've got others that have had the, I'm going to stick my head in the sand. I'm better than anybody else. I'm not going to get caught. And what I'm starting to find more recently, so since the Wayfair decision, is the investor community is now very clearly including sales tax due diligence in their due diligence. And I've been, you know, engaged by a couple of different investors and have been part of their due diligence process. And they have walked away from deals because the company hadn't dealt with sales tax or there has been a fairly large either purchase price adjustment or there's been a delay in the sale because they're requiring the target company to resolve all of these open issues. And it's, it's, it's been eye-opening to many of those uh, entrepreneurs. And, and so I think historically, yes, particularly, you know, a company that's been in business for 37 years, like the one you mentioned, Judy, they weren't caught in 37 years. They get a bit of a bravado and they're like, I haven't been caught. I'm not going to get caught. And I think it also, you know, I talk a lot about with my clients, you know, who are your customers? Are you B2B or are you B2C? If you're B2C, you know, you're probably less likely to be caught unless you're the type of a product that an auditor happens to buy. Because we have to remember that auditors are people too, as much as sometimes we, we like to think they aren't. But I, I know of a number of companies that got caught because the auditor bought something online and didn't get charged tax and wanted to figure out why. And, and that, I think, is going to start happening more as it becomes less relevant to determining where a company needs to collect tax as to where they're physically located. Oh, I was going to say, that's a really interesting, I love the how did you get caught stories. Um, Judy and I, um, we were in an actually kind of like a mini hearing with a jurisdiction and there, you know, it kind of came up like, well, how did you find us? Right? Like you can't Google X, Y, Z and find us because, you know, for whatever reason, they kind of didn't want certain, they didn't want to come up in a Google search. And they're like, well, here's what we do. When we go out to lunch and you software company, you like to have your name branded on everything. We look at company swag when we're in the airport, when we're in line at lunch, when we're walking down the street, we write down all of these companies' names. We have this list and then we go back to our office, we check a database. And if you're not in there, we look up your address and we send you a notice. Well, as an auditor, keeping in mind this was 35 years ago, one of my duties whenever I went out, uh, because I went all over the state of Kansas, uh, actually all over Northeast Kansas, that was my territory for the most part, The uh, one of the obligations was every little town you went into, you were supposed to pick up a phone book. Remember those? Interesting. <laughs> and, and in the audit room, we had a library of all these little town phone books. And when you had downtime, you would pull out a phone book and you would start going through the yellow pages and you would look up to see if the companies were registered. Because if they had a yellow pages listing in the phone book that had a local phone number or had a local address, they should have been registered at that point. And so it's very similar. You know, we talk to companies about, you know, going to trade shows. And if the trade show you go to is open to the public, 
auditors get trade show duty. And their duty is to walk up and down the aisles of the trade show and pick up a brochure from every single company that has a booth. And then they come back and they look to see if they're registered. They have proof that you were in their state. You know, right. there's the, the truck uh, waste, waste station duty. You'll go and you'll sit there and you will look for all the trucks that are coming in. And it may be a contract carrier. It may be a common carrier that just is doing um, hauling for a, a particular client. And they've got, you know, logos on the, on the trailer. There are, you know, airplane and boat duties. Um, I never got those because, of course, we were in landlocked Kansas. But the, you know, uh, they go and they look at the wing numbers of the planes, the private planes coming in. And so there's all of those different ways that auditors identified companies historically. Today, it's just a little bit different. You know, it's very easy to just sit down and just pick a topic and Google it and see the companies that come up. Well, yeah. it's interesting you say all this, though, in lieu of the fact that, you know, this has been going on for years. There's also a way for people to figure out who you are from a marketing perspective. Certainly, you want people to know. Why is it, though, that we're still at this point where people are not willfully compliant? There is this, still this brava bravado, right? And so that's, I mean, even you're saying, and I've noticed the same thing within the last few years, I've seen the PE firms, the private equity and all sorts getting more up on these issues. But I, I mean, historically, when I first started 25 years ago for me, it wasn't the case. And so the escrows didn't really exist until the last few years. And so it just feels like this evolution of something that's existed. Why are we, why are we still here, right? Well, I think... I think it's gotten better. I, I agree. You know, we've, uh, I, back in the late 80s, I was dealing with an acquisition when I was with Quaker. And it was, you know, sales tax was typically not an issue that a manufacturing company had to worry about because our sales were not subject to tax. But they were acquiring a company that it was going to be, you know, direct sales that they had to worry about. And, and it was a huge, it was a purchase price adjustment. At 24 years old, I had to go before the board of directors of Quaker Oats and explain why we had a seven-figure, uh, uh, actually eight-figure purchase price adjustment. And, you know, that was kind of scary because they had never had to deal with that before. But I think what is happening is, you know, certainly the, the focus on entrepreneurship has exploded, you know, probably in the last 10 to 20 years, even more so. And what, what has happened, and, and I would like to think that, you know, my business as the Sales Tech Institute, you know, we have really tried hard to be an educational resource or an information resource for companies. And, I think they are starting to get more visibility. I think the other thing that is happening are accountants that and, and bookkeepers, particularly, that work with these startups and work with these smaller companies are much more uh, likely to bring it up. The other thing that I believe is happening is a lot of the uh, startup incubator types of organizations. Here in Chicago, we have an organization called 1871. Um, they are very well aware of the need to uh, get sales tax handled correctly. I actually spoke just um, this week 
last week on a to a an accelerator group for uh, food uh, products. So it was a small group of I think it's eight uh, companies that are in the cohort called the Good Food Accelerator that they are uh, startups selling different kinds of food products. And they they had asked the question about sales tax. And so they brought me in to do a session about sales tax. And I think that's what we're starting to see happen more is that those types of organizations that are providing advice and counsel and support to startups are starting to make them think about it. And it's baby steps, Judy. I, I agree. I wish it could move quicker, but I think it's better than it was 20 years ago. And I think in five years, it'll be even better than it is today. Yeah, that's probably very true. I mean, that's sort of, sort of a bright side of it. I think I'm just curious too, in lieu of that, how do you think the reception is? How did the reception go when you presented that to the board of directors of Quaker Oats? Did you, were you met with a bunch of frowns and frustration and anger? Or were they recept? Okay, because that's the other challenge: is the the physical demonstration of frustration, as if it's your fault, right? Oh, you're the best, you're the bearer of bad news, but really, you're, you're not the one who created the rules and the laws. The company that you're acquiring was the one that wasn't uh, compliant, right? And Correct. so, you know, it's. I'm sorry, I'm just telling you the truth of what that business should have done. It did not do it. So don't be, don't shoot the messenger. But I think there's a, I feel there's a little bit of a challenge of being the messenger. And I'm assuming given that you've been doing this so many years and you've been very successful, continuing to draw people into your classes, that there's still this desire for knowledge and understanding. And to what do you attribute that continuous, um, you know, ability to serve the community and adding new uh, students and all that? Because, you know, once again, they're becoming the messenger and teaching them how to be a good messenger, I suppose. But what do you think about that in terms of the fact that you're continuing to fill your classes all these years later? Well, I, I would like to think that part of it is natural curiosity of people that when they hear about something, you know, that they want to learn and that they have a genuine desire to do what's right for their business. Now, it could be that, that, up the chain, you know, senior management may not be as supportive, but I think that deep down, businesses really want to do what's right. There's always going to be some bad apples out there that that are going to be the uh, evaders of of tax and really do things illegally. But I think down deep, most businesses, and I think, you know, the Sarbanes-Oxley uh, provisions, scarily, what is that now, almost 20 years uh, that they've been out there and, and the rules with having internal controls in place. And, you know, back, back in the day, you know, when, when you had a company that actually thought about, oh, I should set up a reserve it was a, you know, throw a dart at a wall to figure out what number to put into that reserve. And it could be your slush fund. Today, you can't do that. ASC 450 says you've got to have it measurable and it's got to be um, 
fixed and determinable, fixed and determinable. And and so now you see companies, uh, particularly public companies, really do uh, take this much more seriously. And so I think that's part of it. You know, why do people seek out training and, and particularly seek out our training? I think what we have always focused on in, in the entire 24 years that we've been doing training is it's practical knowledge. So we really focus on making sure that people just don't get the, the technical tax knowledge, but know how to apply that to what they're doing. And I think we've gained a, a reputation for that. And so we have people that come back, our advanced workshop, we have people that come every year. And, and why do they come back every year? Because sales tax laws change. They change every day. And so you need to stay on top of it. If you're going to work in this field, it is a lifelong learning opportunity. And people that like that, people that really do enjoy learning, I think also gravitate towards this because it does change so frequently. Are there any concepts that you see kind of year over year or class after class that, you know, your attendees really struggle with? Uh, clearly Nexus and, and the changes uh, more recently, but even before the Wayfair decision, you know, what constitutes substantial physical presence? You know, is one visit into a state sufficient? Well, what is that one visit doing? Um, and, and so looking at that and trying to understand that, I think Nexus will always be a topic that is a challenge. Um, another one that we have all kinds of questions on are drop shipments. I think I got three drop questions in my email just today. And, you know, what, what do I need to, to get from my customers? What do I need to give to my suppliers? What is a drop shipment? How do I deal with this? How do I know which state's rules to apply? So that is something that, that becomes even more prevalent in the e-commerce world because so many businesses have all of their goods drop shipped. They're not actually holding the inventory. So I think those are uh, two of the things that have historically. And then the one that is certainly the up and coming is the taxation of digital goods and um, knowing what is it that you're selling and then more importantly, where do you source it? Which state has the right to tax a SaaS uh, service agreement that covers employees in multiple states, you know, where is it sourced to? Is it where the bill to address is? Well, unfortunately, that's usually what happens. But where are the users located? And so that is another uh, big issue. And, and sourcing can be, be an issue on a lot of different things. If you've got marketing materials and promotion materials that you're mailing to prospects and customers. No, it's interesting. If I have another, if I get another thing of software as a service, it's a service. And you're like, well, your agreement pretty much says it's a license. So let me get this straight, right? So there's definitely some misapplication or misunderstanding of the laws as it applies to that type of industry um, where I have that a lot. And then, you know, it's funny you mentioned the Nexus issue. I remember when I first met my first ginormous Nexus study way back when at Deloitte, and we went through the minimum contacts, right? They've spent a day, two days in a state. Was a, was there a de minimis standard? And that has not been well articulated in most states. So it's really something that just isn't hasn't been addressed many, many years ago. And now we see states like Michigan and California saying one day is enough to create nexus. So I think that's a real shocker for business that there's there isn't really this de minimis or they'll argue, well, it's a 1099 person. It's not my real salesperson. Uh, it doesn't matter, right? So the agency issues... 
my favorite are, well, but we use a PEO. They're not really my employee. It's like, yeah, yeah, they are. Like, I, I understand that, you know, XYZ payroll company is, you know, what is on your W-2, but where's that money coming from? You know, I am an employee of tax ops. We use a PEO. Like, there is no way that I am not an employee of tax ops just because my W-2 says something else. That's a fight that we see a lot, too. Well, and I think part of that is even companies that have um, uh, purchasing companies or have central office administration and service center companies, you know, that they've got all of their salespeople in one entity, but they're selling for all of the operating entities. And that gets back to what we started the conversation, uh, the discussion about understanding your business. It's understanding all of these nuances and even those, those visits into a state. You know, our Nexus questionnaire has, I don't know, a hundred questions on it because you have to segregate every different type of activity because a sales solicitation, you might be able to do more, but if you're in the state doing a service, you're doing an installation, you're doing a training, you're doing a repair, that is is not only creating sales tax nexus, but also income tax nexus. And, and so you need to segregate those out. And that's where, you know, it really comes down to um, you know, educating the business about what's relevant. And, and I completely agree, you know, I think we talked about this earlier of, you know, sales tax shouldn't control the business. It shouldn't, but business decisions should take into account all costs associated with that and understanding the tax costs, whether that is income tax, withholding taxes, income taxes, payroll taxes, property taxes, all need to be taken into consideration as you think about that. You know, even business licenses. I had a client back when I was at Anderson that they had salespeople that would willy-nilly go into, you know, different states to make, no kidding, a $100 sale. Um, and, and they were getting caught not just on the sales tax side, but they were getting business licenses. And they were getting franchise taxes and they were getting the income tax really wasn't the issue because they were sales solicitations. So that's a protected activity for income tax. It was all these other piddly nuanced taxes, uh, nuisance taxes that were really adding up. And so before a salesperson, they finally put something in place that the salesperson, before they went into a state, had to clear with the finance department who would call us and we would say, okay, if they go into this state, here's what you're subject to. And it was the, it was the business licenses that they were getting caught. Right, because that offsets the cost of the sale. I mean, you're, all your profit is eaten up in that license. I remember um, at Deloitte, we were trying to figure out if we could build a repository of all those business licenses because there's so many jurisdictional licenses that people don't, there's no real common list of all that that was available at that time. And we're trying to figure out how to do that economically, but not every business is subject to the same types of business licenses. So very interesting in um, a nuance in the, that area. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've been asked, why do you still do sales tax? And, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Meredith, you asked me, what, what do I specialize in? We, well, you know, we've, we've morphed over the years, you know, early on, my business was tax technology. You know, we were known for implementing tax systems. 
And we still do, we still do that, not as much as we used to, um, but we do a lot of uh, planning. We do a lot of nexus studies. We do a lot of voluntary disclosures, uh, audit defense. Um, but really what has become a, a much bigger part of our business is our training. And, you know, we, we love talking to new people. We love having the opportunity to meet uh, these students. We celebrate them. Um, last year, we actually introduced um, a concept, a, a brand called the Sales Tax Nerd. Um, and, and what did that come out of? It came out of us talking to people that are our students or just people that use our resources. And what we heard from them time and time again is, I feel isolated, I feel alone, I feel unappreciated, but I'm really proud of what I do. And I love what I do. And so we decided to celebrate all of those people. And, and so Sales Tax Nerd is what came out of that. We actually uh, launched a, um, an award. So last year we awarded our first ever Sales Tax Nerd of the Year. So that will become an annual offering, an annual award that we will uh, present. And we're actually going to be launching this summer a Sales Tax Nerd community. Uh, which we're very excited about. So it will be an opportunity for all of us sales tax nerds to come together and support each other and be resources to each other and help each other uh, succeed in what we have chosen in our career. Well, and that's how you and I know each other, Diane, because, you know, you're in Illinois, but you obviously operate nationally and we collaborate because you've seen things I might not have seen and vice versa. And we can help exactly. one another because you're only as good as the experiences. You can look at every single one of our American laws and read them, but how they are interpreted can depend on the facts and circumstances of each industry, each client, each legislative body, and each auditor, right? So those are the things where we rise each other up, I think, and it's been my experience, by collaborating with other like-minded people such as yourself so that we can enhance the client experience and get the best possible answer for them. So, and I love that. I have my sales tax nerd sticker um, and I have it on my laptop and I was just looking at it and I wanted to bring that up. So I'm glad you did. What I love about this field is... Uh, you know, Judy, you and I are competitors, but we're also collaborators and we're also associates. And, you know, you're there on the ground in Colorado. And I love that I can call on you when I'm like, okay, what exactly is this city doing? What are right. and, you know, the nuances of that? And, you know, I've got my own crazy, it's only one city, but the city of Chicago that does crazy things out there. And, you know, there is more than enough work to go around for all of us. And, and the more we work together, those of us that are in smaller independent businesses, what we have the opportunity to do with that collaboration is actually provide similar types of uh, expansive resources that a client could go and get from a big four, but they actually get the value of working with the top people in the field that are the leaders of their firms at a price that they can afford and know that we've got a national or, an, you know, I, I've actually got international partners to help me when I've got issues outside the U.S. Yep. And, and it's collaboration. It is, um, surely there's, there's friendly competition, but at the same time, there's, there's more than enough work to go around. I agree. 
And I think that's the perfect end to a conversation that I'm sure, you know, we could go on for hours, really, um, and just share stories and, you know, create that partnership. But I want to thank you both for joining us today on the Saltivation Podcast. If you want to continue the conversation, you can reach Diane Yetter at salestaxinstitute.com and Judy Bornjorn at saltivation.com. Please join us on our next podcast for a discussion with Bruce Nelson, a 30-year veteran of state and local tax, who is now the editor of the Journal of State Taxation and an instructor for the AICPA. You can find all our podcasts on saltivation.com, where you can let us know the topics you'd like to hear on future episodes. I'm Meredith Smith. Until next time.